All right, would you pray with me as we jump into the message together? Jesus, we are so very thankful that we can pause and be intentional, that even time on a Sunday morning is an investment in eternal things. And so we ask that even right now, Holy Spirit, that, that I wouldn't be just preaching good things, a good Easter message, but that we'd actually engage with you face to face. We don't want to sing about you or talk about you like you're not here. So Holy Spirit, even right now, would you just bring a sensitivity to Jesus himself? Let us tune in to your voice and to your leading. You are the teacher and the counselor. And so would you open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts to receive everything that you have for us this morning. In Jesus' mighty name. Someone say amen. 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 All right. You guys ready? Buckle up. We're going for a nice ride together here. Um, Also, I just wanted to celebrate for a moment um, our baptisms yesterday. Uh, about, about a week ago, uh, someone was asking me about, or a couple weeks ago, they were asking me about baptisms, and I was like, hey, are you cool if I open this up to the community? And so we just whipped that up in the past week, and we had 11 people baptized at the beach yesterday. Really incredible. All right. Did you know that you were born to confront the impossible? I'm going to be preaching this morning on experiencing the resurrection power of Jesus. You were born to confront the impossible. Each of us in our relationship with God, through walking with him in a relational journey, are given the very DNA of Jesus when we open our lives to following him. We are new creations that carry the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. And all of heaven is leaning in and looking at your life and waiting to see what you're going to do about it. I remember in my own life, I grew up as a believer in some really good environments, actually. And I, I, I knew the Lord was calling me into full-time ministry. I went to ministry school in Chicago. I was deep in textbooks. I was going to all the classes. And somewhere along that journey, I was like, this is getting pretty dry. Because the Word of God was becoming a textbook in my own life. And some of you can relate to that, where you just have a hard time sometimes engaging with the Word of God, and you're like, why does this feel like a textbook? Why does my life actually feel a little dry? Isn't isn't God called oil? Isn't he called joy? Where's the fruit of the oil and joy? And how many of you can agree that we don't need any more dried up, clunky turbines in the field anymore? We need the oil of joy, the oil of gladness, who is Jesus himself operating through these engines. If the harvest is coming in, we got to be running at full capacity. If the harvest is coming in, we got to be running with full capacity of joy. This is what we are called to. The joy is fruit of peace and righteousness of the Holy Spirit active in our life. And so today we're going to be exploring what this this power, this experience of the resurrection means to us and to our lives. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the absolute most pivotal event in all of history. If it's all a sham, 
If all the claims are false, then I owe you guys and the rest of the world to give my entire life to warn you that these false claims need to be dismissed. And I will give my entire life to, to tell you, hey, hey, this is all false. You are wasting your time. What are you doing preaching about this Jesus? But I also got to tell you that if this is true, if this is a true message, then I owe the rest of my life to open my mouth and demonstrate with my life the real power and glory and the goodness of God and the good news message of Jesus Christ. This is what we owe the world. We owe the world an encounter with Jesus through our lives. The Moravians in the 1700s put us a little bit to shame because for 100 years, they had a continuous prayer and worship service. 100 years. And the fruit of spending time with Jesus in that level of prayer and intimacy and worship started exploding hearts and started exploding hearts enough that they were willing to go in the middle of the 1700s to wherever God was calling them. And they would be sending off the Moravians from Europe to wherever they felt called. Some would say goodbye to their kids, maybe never to see them again. But the anthem of the Moravians is an anthem and a cry that I believe is in our hearts today. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward for his sufferings. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward for his sufferings. He is worth it all. The longer I live, the more I say, what, what, else, what else are we here for? What else am I doing? He is worth it all. He is worth it all. No matter the things in your life that you're like, I, I, I don't know if I can give this one thing up. This one thing is too difficult. I have to tell you, even before you believe me, I've got to tell you from my spirit to your spirit, it is worth it all. It is worth it all. He is worth giving it all for. It's about lives set on fire with passion for his name. And with all the pain and the suffering and confusion in our own lives and the world around us, there's only one real lasting solution. And it's the power of Jesus by his death and his resurrection. When he took his last breaths and he said, it is finished, he didn't forget anything. He didn't offer a, a portion of the solution for the problem that's in your life. He actually paid for all of it, all of the brokenness, all of the sin, all of the issues and chaos and pain. And when we look at life through the death and resurrection of Jesus, literally we have completely new lenses. I was joking with Connie yesterday. She got baptized. Hey, Connie. I don't, know how ex I don't know how expensive her sunglasses were, but they're now in the Pacific Ocean. And I said, be careful what you pray for, Connie, because she was praying for new vision. I said, the Lord just came like a wave and crashed over you. New vision for Connie. Power, wisdom, and understanding in Connie's life. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. It literally brings us new lenses as we look at the resurrection. Everything now begins to make sense. C.S. Lewis, who wrote, you would know, the Chronicles of Narnia. Think of Mr. Tumnus playing his little flute. 
Lucy with her little potion. But C.S. Lewis was actually an incredible theologian as well. And I love that he, he wrote these, these stories for all ages, actually. But let's look at what C.S. Lewis said. Let's put it up on the screen. It's not there? It's okay. I, yeah. You know, I did put it up there, but we surrender that. We surrender it all. Surrender. It's fine. All right, it's fine. We're moving on. I'm going to read it to you. Imprinted upon your hearts today. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not because I see it, but because I see everything else. Can I read that again? I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because I see everything else. This is the lens of the resurrection of Jesus in our lives. Changes everything. And when the truth of the resurrection becomes illuminated in our lives, it redefines it all. You can actually now, through this lens, see your true purpose and calling. You can see your dreams begin to shift a little bit as you see really what you were created for. You have a new vision for your marriage and for your family, and you want someone that actually aligns with that same vision and calling. Hope actually begins to become more and more real rather than just a temporary fulfillment. And it's all because Jesus conquered death in my place and he rose in victory. And did you know that his resurrection is your resurrection? His resurrection is your resurrection. We could explore that in Romans chapter six. His resurrection is yours. It's the resurrection that caused us to be born again by the spirit of God living in us. You realize that Jesus didn't just raise himself. It was the spirit of God that breathed new life into his frame and raised him up. And that's what he's still doing with lives today. And so this Easter morning, I want to look at the account of the grave and the resurrection found in John chapter 19. And as we read this, I believe that we'll experience God in an absolute glorious way that brings a fresh charge of boldness and power into your lives. So let's turn together to John 19. Are there any slides today, Bridget? They disappeared. Well, you'll have to look at your phones, your, did anyone bring an, a big iPad, a giant one, or your physical Bibles, which would be A++ students. Yep. There you go. Raise them high. That's good. All right. So open up to John 19. And just setting the stage of where we're at, this is just after Jesus breathed his last breaths. He died on the cross. Yet the other two, remember he was, he was at Calvary with two others on his sides. And they were surrounding Jesus, still fighting for their last breaths and raising themselves up. If you remember that crucifixion was, was in the Romans' mind, they were like, what could be the most tormenting and humility, humiliating way of death? and they would hang individuals on this cross, and they would actually die by not being able to breathe. 
And so eventually they would come and break the legs of the individuals that were on the cross so they could no longer lift themselves up to get a breath. It's a vivid picture. But let's read together John 19, verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might take these men away. Verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they did not break his legs. A couple of things I want to note here. In the Old Testament, the prophets had written that Jesus' bones would not be broken. This was a prophetic word of the Old Testament prophets, that not a bone would be broken of the Messiah. And so this was a fulfillment of those prophecies. And it, isn't it interesting that he died before the other two? If you think about the thief on the cross next to him, in the last breaths of their lives, the thief is looking upon the life of Jesus and somewhere in there recognizes that this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. And he turns to him in a posture of repentance of his sins, right there in his final last moments. Someone that probably was so deserving of death. And Jesus looked at him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. This is the greatest example of grace because it's nothing that he earned. It wasn't by going to church enough. It wasn't by doing a lot of good deeds. It wasn't by putting a blanket over elderly women's legs so they're warm. It was, it was the good grace of God that was extended to this individual's life in this moment. And I, I think there's something special about the grace of God in these last moments of someone's, someone's life. I, I remember a, a story of um, a 14-year-old girl was on a missions trip down to San Francisco from Bethel Church. And I, I remember they were doing street evangelism. And this 14-year-old girl led this older gentleman to the Lord right there on the street. And he, he gave his life to the Lord in his old age. And they went about doing some other ministry for probably another hour, hour and a half. And they started hearing sirens. And they, they came back to the scene and realized the man that had received Jesus had just died. And he was being carried off in the ambulance. This is the grace of God waiting for someone's last moments. And though we want to follow him at the youngest age possible, right? The grace of God is extended to every single one of us. On my dad's side, my family is from Norway. And he did have one uncle, I believe, that was following the Lord, but the rest of the family did not grow up having relationship with Jesus. And so my grandma, Leif, um, had cancer. And years ago, when I was still young, my, my parents went to Norway, and in the last time of her life, the last month or two, she gave her life to Jesus. They were able to share the gospel with her, and before her final days, she was able to give her life to Jesus. And though, again, this is not ideal, we wanna see people walking with Jesus and having that abundant life, but there is something beautiful about the grace extended even at the last moments of our life. And how many of you know that it's not, it's not about taking communion enough, it's not even about having a baptism in water. 
as beautiful as that is and how powerful that is, it's about by grace alone through faith in Jesus, confessing that he is God and making him Lord of your life. So the question still remains, why did he die before the other two? And I'd like to propose to you that though his bones were not broken and he still died first, I believe it was the weight of the sin and shame and torment of this world that pressed upon him. Have you ever been riddled with so much guilt in your life from an act that you feel like you're being crushed? Those moments where you've entered or some sort of partnership with shame or sin and you feel like, some of you might've even felt like, I feel like I'm gonna die. Now multiply that by an entire lifetime now multiply that by billions and billions of human beings. That was the weight of sin and shame and death upon Jesus that he bore on the cross. So I'd like to propose to you that under the crushing, his life was ended. He became a curse on a tree so that you could be free from every curse. There is no curse that has a legal right over your life anymore. As a follower of Jesus, you are given a new bloodline. It's the DNA and flow of Jesus in your life. Every curse has lost its authority in your life. He bore the curse so that every curse of your life could be broken and you could live free, whole, healed, redeemed, freedom from the control of sin. It was enough. John 19, 34, following the story here. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once, this is out of the sight of Jesus, at once there came blood and water. Also, can we celebrate that there is now text on the screen? Praise God. For thousands of years, they did not have such screens. But today, we celebrate. They pierced his side with his spear, and at once there came out blood and water. In the Old Testament model of Moses, remember that they had to take the presence of God with them. There was the leading of God with the nation of Israel. They left the land of Egypt, and the presence of God was with them. And they were able to go with the leading of the Lord. It was a cloud by day and a fire by night kind of movement as they followed him and followed his presence. And what they had at the time was called the tabernacle. There were two main compartments. There was the holy place and the holy of holies. And there was a courtyard. And from, from this entire uh, tabernacle, only priests were allowed to enter. And only once a year could the great high priest enter the holy of holies. And, and in this model that the Lord has set up, because everything in the Old Testament was to point to the need of a savior, that to point to the severity of sin and the need for a savior in our lives. And so even this model of the tabernacle points to the need of Jesus. And so here we see that the priests were allowed to enter the courtyard area, and the first thing that they would pass was the brazen altar. Brazen is a slightly bigger word for brass. So it was an altar, and on this altar they would sacrifice animals. 
and the sacrifices of these animals would pay for sin for only one year. But it wouldn't be a full payment of the sin. It would be a temporary putting it off for another year. A putting it off for another year from any punishment of the sin. And just past the altar was a copper bowl that was made of mirrors and it contained water. So here we see the brazen altar, which was blood, and right next to it we see this, this copper and mirrored structure that was a bowl of water. It's important to know that every blood sacrifice would only deal with the sin for that year. It postponed it for only one more year. But what we see is that the blood always dealt with the sin of the people, but the priests were also required to wash with the water in the basin. And now I'm going to turn to Zechariah 13. And this is a prophecy speaking about the day of the Messiah. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. This, this Old Testament terminology of the people of God, this is us. This is the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We're included into this. And it says that there will be a fountain opened for us to cleanse us from sin and uncleanness. This is, this is the place where Jesus on Calvary, where he, where he died under the weight of sin, and they pierced him to confirm that he was dead. Because if he was dead, blood and water would be poured out. And here in the moment where this was driven into his side, there was a fountain full of grace that flowed from his very veins that would be opened by the spear, bringing a cleansing of blood and water, a cleansing from sin and uncleanness. This is the fulfillment of Zechariah 13. And how many of you guys know that just living in this world, even if you yourself are not partnering with a degree of disobedience and sin, even just living in this world, we feel like we are slimed, that we are swirled, that we are brought into things that just make us feel funky, that feel heavy, that feel confusing. Can you guys relate to that sometimes? Just take a little stroll down Venice Boardwalk. You might feel a little slimed, a little, a little dazed at times, because you're navigating the atmosphere around you, aren't you? And sometimes we don't quite know what to do with that. Some days you just feel like you're in a funk. Like, why do I feel heavy? I, I don't I'm think, Holy Spirit, is there any major sin issues right now? What's going on? And I, I want to propose to you that there's something in this passage that points to a fulfillment of what you're supposed to do about it. If, if you just even open up social media sometimes, it can take about 30 seconds before you feel a little bit funky yourself, right? Because there's all sorts of messaging being pointed at you. But whatever is surrounding you and maybe impacting you negatively, what's needed is the washing of the Word of God. Opening the Word of God, letting the Word Himself wash over you, through you, cleanse you, it's a necessary part of the Christian walk. And it's gonna keep you from the pollution of the world around you. 
This was the fountain that was opened in the sight of Christ, the blood and the water dealing with sin and all kinds of pollution and contamination around us, in us, and through us. Now I want us to flip over to John chapter 20. We're continuing the narrative. John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peeper and Peter and the... Peeper, Simon Peeper. It's, you know, he, he, he had a lot of name changes and this is the new one. It's, it's the lighthearted Peter, Simon Peeper. You guys caught that real fast, okay. He went to Simon Peter, catch this, and the other disciple, no name, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. And both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Some of you already know the joke. The joke is this unnamed, more loved, and faster disciple, he's the guy that wrote the book. It's John. He doesn't even include his own name. He's like, I'm the one that is most loved by Jesus. And in a race with Peter, I definitely got there first. So just wanted eternity to know that, make that really clear. I might rest my head on the bosom of Jesus, but I'm fast. That was John. And I think that's really funny in the middle of this kind of heavy story. Because either John's got some issues... He lacks some self-awareness, maybe. Or maybe, just maybe, he's facing one of the greatest challenges of humility because not since when Moses wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he was the meekest man on the planet, which that alone is, is something else to think about. Because if this was the true inspired word of God, and you're hearing the Lord speak, you're like, wait, you want me to write that about myself? And you had to deal with the humility, but still being authentic and obedient to the voice of God. That's just a side note that I think is fascinating. So either John is an egoist, or he chose to walk in humility to the point of obedience, even to the point of appearing like he is self-serving. Verse five, stooping in to look, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a, in a place by itself. Isn't it interesting what the Holy Spirit chooses to include in scripture? We have so many other details not included but we have a, a nice origami of linens going on. Oh, that, oh gr that's good to know. The head cloth was, was, was folded nicely, but not with the other linens. Okay. I just think it's a, a fascinating picture. 
And I, I did a little dive into this because I've heard a few different theories, some, some, some theories that are um, cute, some that are actually possible. But there's, there's one theory that I kind of liked that I can't prove necessarily, but they say it's possible that in Jewish tradition, they would, they would visit a guest's house and fold their napkin in such a way that they're like, I'm coming back. It was a sign of respect and honor. I'm coming back to this house. Just, just a free one to throw in there as well. I love scripture. There's constantly little goodies to pull from. All right. And, and here I want to look at this part. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. One of the most sacred parts of the tabernacle that I was talking about was what hosted the presence of God. That was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. And within this, this great golden, it was a wood box covered with gold, and it held on every corner um, various loops where you could place in poles so that priests could carry the ark as God said to go. If God said to go, only the priests could put the ark on their shoulders and carry it. We see one mistake, and that was when King David put that on an ox cart. And when he did so, it began to fall over and someone out of good intention touched the side of the ark and was immediately killed. Because the ark was not meant to be carried on the back of an ox cart, it was meant to be carried on the shoulders of priests. And how many of you know that in the New Testament, we are called priests? Do we realize that we are carriers of the presence of God? We carry the holiness and the power and the presence of God everywhere we go. And so here we see that this, this wooden box overlaid with gold, cornered with different rings so they could transport it with poles. And, and in the middle of the Ark of the Covenant were three areas of testimony. Inside the box, you would find three different things of testimony. One, you would find the stone tablets that Moses came down Mount Sinai with that, that held the Ten Commandments. Those are inside the box. Secondly, there was a golden jar of manna. If you remember, manna means, what is it? Because the Israelites were in the desert and they didn't have access to food, but every morning the Lord would appear manna that they could collect and eat from. They had never seen what it was. It was a miracle of manna. And so in the ark, they had the tablets, they had the manna, and number three, they had Aaron's rod. This was a wooden rod that miraculously began to sprout and bud and actually contained almonds from his staff. It was also another miraculously, um, miraculously powerful sign that they included in the ark. And these three testimonies speak of the testimony of who God is. The Ten Commandments testified of God's law and word. The manna testified of God's provision for his people. And the rod testified of the miraculous, the new and eternal life of God. And so these testimonies are inside this box. But on top of this box, the center of it 
is called the mercy seat. Have you guys heard of the mercy seat before? This rested on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And at the mercy seat were two angelic beings from one side to the other that faced each other. And there's something about, I believe this is no mistake, that each time that we testify of what God has done, you are actually drawing on the mercy seat of God into the lives of those who are hearing the miraculous power of Jesus. Every single time you testify about what God has done. And I would like to propose that when the disciples came to the tomb and they saw that it was empty, but there was an angel to the left and to the right sitting up to the place of where Jesus laid before, there was a direct mirror that pointed back to the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. No mistake. And what was a temporary pointing towards what will be the mercy and grace extended of God to all of creation, that this was the spiritual fulfillment that came through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ himself. It was a sign and declaration that the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant in place of God's presence was being replaced by a true spiritual one where the mercy of God is now released into all of the earth through Christ himself because he is alive and he's declaring that there is now a shift in seasons. And we see this shift in seasons further down in verse 13. John 20, verse 13. The other disciples said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing. She didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus told her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Do you catch that? She thought he was just the gardener by the tomb. She said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. How fascinating is this verse that she is speaking with the resurrected Christ, but she has no idea who he is. In one moment, everything becomes real and clear to her. And that moment is when Jesus calls her name. I think there's something so powerful and holy when the Lord calls our names. It's in that moment that the winds of the Spirit are carried out and make everything clear. Everything is unveiled because of the calling of our names. And at that moment of her name being called, she recognizes him that this is her Lord and her God. And I want to talk just for a moment about who Mary is. Because Mary, a woman, is the first person that God chose to reveal the good news message to from his resurrection. She was the one that he instructed to go and tell others that I am alive. She's the one. But Mary, this Mary, Mary Magdalene, had seven demons cast out of her. And there's something to this that we need to take note of. When Jesus was first born, 
he was born to the Virgin Mary. The contrast of two names of Mary. To the Virgin Mary he was born, pure and innocent, he was brought in. But when he was the firstborn from the dead, he was saying this is a new season of grace where it doesn't matter what you've gone through, no matter what kind of mess you've made in your life, no matter what deliverance you might have needed, this is a new season. The firstborn from the dead, the first one to touch him was Mary Magdalene. And the first one to preach the good news of Jesus raised from the dead was Mary Magdalene. And what's the point? It's a shift of seasons. In the Old Testament, if someone was unclean for a variety of reasons under the law, no matter what they had done or was happening to their body even, or they were sick, they were considered unclean. Stay away, don't touch them. Stay away, you are unclean. But Jesus comes on the scene and he looks to the one that is unclean. He looks to the leper and he is drawn to them. This is a new season of grace. And he is commissioning in by his resurrection a new season of grace where the very DNA of Jesus alive in us is saying, go to the leper. You all of a sudden are drawn to the one that is sick. You are drawn to the one that is hurting. You are drawn to the one that is in need of an emotional doctor because you know who you are in Christ. The Old Testament had to focus on sin. It was screaming at us that there was only one solution for sin. There's no self-cleansing. There's no self-help program. It's only the blood of Jesus that, can, that we can be saved and set free from sin and death. And some people say that there are many ways to God. There's, there's many ways, brother, to the Lord. There's many ways. Whatever you think is God, your higher being, that's okay. Just connect with that. We celebrate. If you want to pray to the moon, pray to the moon. You know, this is real in this city, isn't it? And there's a, they, there's a syncretism where people are blending. I'll choose a little over here. I'll choose a little over here. And you don't realize actually the demonic attachment that you're bringing into your own life. But I got to tell you that there's only one way. And the way is narrow but the way is true. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. He's the only way. Jesus said it himself. And sometimes I think we like to believe we are more compassionate than Jesus himself. Surely there's not just one way to God. But what's the point of his death? What's the point of his death if, if there's a, a possibility of other ways? What's, what's the point? It would have just been cruel for God to do that. But the once and for all payment for the sins of every man and every woman is through Jesus, and it's the way of eternal life. John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and he showed them his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. 
Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Friday, Friday was a a day of horror and shock and grief. Saturday, Saturday was a day of confusion and waiting. So much confusion and waiting and some of you feel that in your own life where you feel like you are just waiting for the miracle and the breakthrough. And there is only confusion and you are trapped in your own emotions and some of you just wanna run away and hide yourself. Well, the disciples did not know what to do. The one they had put everything in, all of their trust, all their faith, all their leading had now been nailed to a cross. The one that said he was going to rescue Israel was no longer there. What are we supposed to do? And so some of them, even on Sunday, started traveling back to their hometown, kind of giving up. Some of you can even relate to that, where you're like, I've tried, I've tried to follow him. And sometimes it just feels like he's so distant. And I, I just want to, I kind of feel like I even want to give up. And I want to tell you that we have a God that's right there in your sufferings with you. He's right there in your sufferings with you. Imagine the emotions that the disciples felt on Saturday. All of the what ifs. What if we had stopped Judas somehow? I'm sure Peter, remember how he denied Jesus? He denied him a couple times. Can you imagine what he's thinking about himself and the shame where he locked eyes with Jesus across the courtyard after denying him? Like, oh my gosh, my God, I can't stay strong for you. And then fear. Are they gonna lose their lives? Confusion, what the heck are we supposed to do now? But by Sunday, many of them were already returning to their homes to go back to normal jobs before Jesus. And I think perhaps the biggest reason people turn from following God is that their own pain and their own confusion is too much. Where's God? If he's really in control, why didn't he do something? But right in the middle of their immense sadness and anxiety, Jesus miraculously walks through the wall. They didn't even recognize him as Jesus. He didn't show up like he normally did. And have you ever ever thought about how God chooses to show himself? It always seems to be different than the way that he previously shows himself. Why does he do that? It's because he wants to teach us to recognize him by his voice and by his presence, not the formulas that we create as men. If there's any box that we create as men, I can tell you God's determined to break that box. So Jesus, out of grace, shows them his hands, his feet, and his side. He had greeted them with peace. They were still in fear. Okay, we see your side, your hands. Okay, be at peace, be at peace. They can finally receive it. Sometimes when you're just in fear, you can't even receive what God's wanting to do in the moment, and you can't even recognize him. Be at peace. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. This marks the first of 40 days that Jesus appeared to his followers after the resurrection in his glorified body. 
the morning immediately shifted into wonder and awe and rejoicing and wild boldness. It was the power of the Holy Spirit in them that activated this boldness and transformed the world through this message. Peter, who had just denied Jesus in a courtyard to a little girl, is now standing up in front of a huge audience proclaiming Jesus as the resurrected Lord. Why? It's because of the life breath of Jesus and the winds and workings of the Holy Spirit in his life. The fruit of the Holy Spirit working in your life and the resurrected power of Jesus brings about faith and boldness at a whole nother level that you've never experienced before. So how, how do I experience this same power of resurrection? If you have made Jesus your Lord and your Savior, the resurrected power of Jesus lives in you and wants to be let out. You are designed to partner with heaven and to destroy the works of the enemy and bring the kingdom of God. You are designed to see impossibilities bow at the name of Jesus and bow at the foot of the cross and release redemption in its place. And it's through his name. We have been given a new DNA and in our conversion is the DNA of Christ himself. It was given to us as a gift. This is the DNA of Christ that draws us to the funeral the DNA that draws us to the broken and the hurting, that draws us to those that need freedom, that is attracted to the impossible situations and the needs of the world to bring the solution of Jesus and the answers of heaven that touches the place of corruption and brings a cleansing and a reconciliation to every area that needs the name of Jesus. And I want to end with this. I believe there are three areas of the resurrection authority that the Lord is stirring within us as individuals and as a church. Three areas of authority that he wants us to step into. Because some of us are lacking authority, but we actually are commissioned to walk in high levels of authority. Number one, word. Word, authority of your word and the word full of the Holy Spirit, connected with God, knowing his heartbeat, not doing it for your own, your own intentions or your own gain, but rising up as those that can speak to situations, speak to sickness, and declare the power and will of God into situations. A shift comes in your life when you start seeing that God is not causing cancer in your uncle's life. A shift comes and a holy righteous anger comes when you see that MS in your aunt is not from the Lord. Because by the stripes of Jesus, you were healed. It was done, it is finished, this is illegal, this curse has to be broken. So do we, do we step up as a, as, a, as a little soft spoken prayer warrior and if it's your will, God, if it's your will that this cancer just exists a little longer in Uncle Jim, what are we doing? Speak to the cancer. Go in Jesus' name. You are illegal. Cancer be expelled in Jesus' name. Get out of my uncle's body in Jesus' name. Be healed. Be free in the name of Jesus. There is an authority of God that can rise within his saints to actually no longer be shackled by a weak fragility of our own struggles 
and actually arise as those that know they are sons, know that they are priests, know that they are kings and queens in the kingdom of God and can co-rule and reign with God into impossibilities and see them bow to the name of Jesus. That's what he's doing in the land right now. And this is not a loose name it and claim it kind of gospel. I am not claiming a new car from behind this curtain. That's called witchcraft. You are not claiming a million dollar check. We are actually those who are servants to the Lord and say, it's not for my own gain. It is for your gain. And so we wait on the Lord. We listen to his voice. We listen to his voice and his leading. What are you doing, God? What do you want me to pray? As you pray, I will pray. I'm not going to loosely manipulate the power and authority that I hold. I'm actually going to target it from the heartbeat of heaven to the world around me. Do you see the difference? The little honk was a confirmation. The driver is just giving a little, huh? A yes, amen. Secondly, we've got word, the authority of touch. Did you know that the laying of hands is actually called elementary teaching in scripture? Isn't that funny? I feel like there's a lot of confusion around that. But there's something that we need to learn about the laying on of our hands to release the kingdom of God and to release power and authority. And finally, action. Are we going into atmospheres that need the resurrection power? Are we serving? Are we loving? Are we humbling ourselves? Are we washing the feet of others as servants, having a posture of humility? What is in it for God? How can I really go low to see Jesus glorified? I have, I have authority, I have power, but I will go low to see Jesus lifted high. And from that place of true humility, the Lord will exalt you in the right time. Word, touch, and action. This is what the Lord is highlighting in the house right now. Three areas of authority that we can partner with God in this season to see a release of the resurrection power of Jesus. And I wanna remind you that this is the, the resurrection of Christ within you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you. Let's go ahead and stand up. We're going to have a time of communion. And in a moment, what I want us to do Just right where you're at, just get a posture of connecting with the Father right now. God, we've been talking about the resurrection power of Jesus but we need by your Holy Spirit an unveiling, an activation, 
and empowerment at a new level. We don't want to strive into a place of just tight-fisting something. We actually need that emboldment that came upon Peter and the other disciples to happen in our own lives by the working of the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, even right now, come right now. Move right now in your people. And I think some of you are going to see even in the spirit a commissioning upon your life where the Lord is even lifting you out of places that you felt stuck. He's highlighting areas that you are actually meant to be a voice. He's highlighting places where you are meant to touch and change the atmosphere. right now, God, we take time on this Easter morning celebrating the power of the cross. We, we will never finish marveling at the beauty and mystery of the cross. And we also look towards the empty tomb and our resurrected God that is seated in glory. So even in this moment, I want us now to take communion with groups of three or four individuals. I want to do this as a community. And so when you're ready, go ahead on the back table is communion and bring that back to your seats and get in little pods of three or four. And I want us to um, stay in that place and um, I'll instruct you from that point on. So go ahead and get in those groups. <clears throat> 